You're listening to The One Room with a View show. With Christopher Preston and Dan Orton. Welcome to the One Room with a View show with myself, Christopher Preston, and the protector of the people, the champion of change, the evangelist of equality. It's <laughs> Reverend Dan Orton. Reverend Dan Orton. <laughs> That's pretty good. I wanted it to be big, I wanted yeah. it to be powerful. It's the third season. Well, God bless you, my child. <laughs> Thank you. God bless everyone. God bless the person that listens to this, that has yes. dragged us back, dragged kicking us back and screaming. After a month off. We're back by underwhelming public support. Is that what they said? That's what I'm going to put on the posters, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How have you been? I've not been too bad, how have you? Well, you know, same old, same old. <laughs> I'm glad that in the interim we haven't mastered the English yeah. language. We're a bit yet. rusty, listeners. So Just a little is, bit. This is the first time we've got back at the uh, recording desk. We're back in the capital. Yeah. Kettle's on. Yes. The sun isn't quite shining. No, which it's is a sort of dull October day. What's going to come up? Okay, so kicking us off. Got some film old, some film new. This month, it's um, perhaps, I think, one of the most discussed films of October so far is uh, Suffragette, which is uh, directed by Sarah Gavron, written by Abby Morgan, starring Kerry Mulligan, Helena Bonham Carter, and, and the inimitable Meryl Streep in a sort of cameo appearance. Mm. She's um, like the Nick Fury of women's rights, isn't she? As we'll probably discuss I think, later yes, on. Uh, yes, that's a good way of putting it. And our uh, some film old is The Iron Lady, which was uh, the, which we felt, I felt thematically linked quite well to to Suffragette, and also obviously written by Abby Morgan again, and and starring Meryl Streep as the Iron Lady herself, Margaret Thatcher, the Nick Fury of women's <laughs> rights films. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, that's what we've got. That's our obviously our our, uh, our big feature as always, and I'm very looking forward to discussing these two films. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's <laughs> what I'm also putting on the poster. <laughs> Just well, the who's movie. paying for these posters? <laughs> <laughs> then um, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to be looking back at, at September because we didn't have a podcast last uh, in September. Yeah. So we're going to just have a quick run through of, of what you and I went and saw in the month, and if anything's worth discussing. Uh, and then we've got the shelf is back. You are I'm covering, putting something you're on. You're putting yeah. something on the shelf this month. Dusting it off. We've got our anti back wipe and uh, and a DVD ready to be slid on. Yeah, I'm good, looking forward good. to it. And you haven't told me yet, so I'm very excited to hear what it is. I'm in, as much in the dark as the audience at this very moment. Yeah, and well, you are the audience I think, <laughs> at this point. So <laughs> I've decided to bring back which Chris said this. Can't wait because it's always a fun little game. Yeah, I've and... kind of been in training for that, particularly over. <laughs> I, I've got my Chris Almanac uh, over the summer, so uh, a bit of homework. Yeah. A little bit of homework. Uh, well, I'll see if I can uh, trump you. I think you you're so far winning two one. Two one. Yeah, I'm not so happy about that. And I'll be rounding things off with net picks. It's a good one this time. We're wearing the same cardigan. Should we crack on? Almost definitely. Never underestimate the power we women have to define our own destinies. We do not want to be lawbreakers. We want to be lawmakers. Some film old. Some film new. Yes, thank you, Chris. Some film new, Suffragette, which came out this month, and The Iron Lady from 2011. Yeah, we, um, and the fun fact, we've actually already spoken about The Iron Lady back on the radio days. I think it was one of the last films yes. that we actually covered together back and, on the radio format. And for cost purposes, we're just going to now play you <laughs> yeah. that review. It's going to be like the uh, Mr. Black episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. And I remember talking about Probably. The Iron, Iron Lady. Lady from 2011. <laughs> <laughs> it was three. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> now, I really enjoyed The Iron Lady when we first saw it, and I enjoyed it again watching it this week. Yeah. And I know it didn't get, you know, 
it didn't get a lot of love when it first came out. And Did I worried... you watch it? Have you watched it in the interim? Like no, in no, this is points? the first time I've seen it since watching it in the cinema. So it's Same. been, you know, four years since yeah. I last saw the film. Mm. And Thatcher um... has obviously passed since that time. Yes, of course, yes. Did that give you a different look at the film? Yeah, I think it did, because I think one of the criticisms levelled at the film initially is that it felt as if they just killed her off. <laughs> You know, and and it did feel like a film that would be born out of the ashes of one's life, rather yes. than them. Because I always, it's always very odd when a when a biopic comes out whilst the subject is still among us. Yeah, I remember Mark Zuckerberg kind of took uh, umbrage over yeah. the fact the Social yeah. Network came out whilst he was still alive. I suppose in some ways they're seen as kind of a cinematic epitaph, aren't they? When when mm. one has a biopic produced about them, and this did seem a little perhaps assuming in its own way. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was a bit presumptuous. And I think that now having watched it since uh, Margaret Thatcher has actually died, it did give me a fresh, maybe slightly different edge to it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe one that was perhaps more sympathetic than my original vi- uh, viewing. Yes, I still felt very sympathetic to her. And that's, I mean, I think that's remarkable of any film mm. to make someone sympathetic of, of Margaret Thatcher, perhaps, mm. depending, I guess, on your, on your outlook. No denying she was a controversial historical figure, but one that, you know, changed the world. Mm. And Meryl Streep's just fantastic. Yeah, Meryl Streep, like Daniel Day-Lewis, kind of strikes me to be... Do you remember when they brought back Tupac for <laughs> that festival with that kind of the hologram kind of thing, yes, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. That actress and, and that actor in particular are like the fleshy versions of that technology. Like I've never seen someone be able to become someone in the same way and not make it feel like cheap or an impressionist show. Mm. Like they just She is Margaret Thatcher. Oh, it's, that it's just amazing. I mean, it, the, the film, obviously, she won the Oscar for it, didn't she? Did. She won Best Actress, and, and the film also won Best Makeup, and, and rightly so. That, yeah. you know, some of the makeup in that film, not just on, on Meryl Streep, but also on Olivia Coleman playing playing her daughter, Carol. And she and, gets her perfect. Yeah, yeah, like, it's very good. I love Olivia Coleman, and, and I think sometimes maybe there's still that kind of sweeping away of her a little bit because she's like a TV actress on Peep Show and on Broadchurch and things like that, but she really holds her own. Like, to take someone from being <laughs> from Peep Show to acting in the same room as Meryl Streep yeah. and to be able to play Carol Thatcher in such a way... Uh, she's got the voice dead on. Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. everyone involved, you know, Jim Broadbent's Dennis Thatcher is just a revelation, if one could say that, about an actor of that stature and of that mm. age. But he's brilliant, particularly because there is that kind of ghoulish connotation of him playing Dennis Thatcher as a kind of hallucinatory ghost. Uh, yeah, so obviously the, the big thing about The Iron Lady is that it's all told in flashback by, and, and Meryl Streep plays both the younger prime ministerial Thatcher and also mm. sort of elder stateswoman Thatcher in, in her in her 80s. It's a well-known fact that she was suffering yeah. from dementia. And, and it's in a the really, film, she's you know, overwhelmed by the dementia. Yes, and I remember saying at the time when we first saw it that I thought it was a very good film about dementia. See, that's that's where I completely agree with you because I think that, as we said, the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, she's a controversial opinion. She's going to split opinion. You can go into a room and it'll be 50 pe- uh, 50% of the people will turn around and say she was a he- heroine. She was this, she was that. Yes. The other person will be dragging a name through the mud. <laughs> the like, Marmite of, of Westminster. Exactly. And we're not here to discuss that. But with the Iron Lady, I think that where it works, it works perhaps less well as a biopic, but it's successful in, in being a film that explores the cruel, cruel nature of something as as harrowing as dementia. Yes, there's a horrible moment where she's watching the TV or she's watching a report about her going to the doctors and then she says out loud, I don't recognise myself, mm. which, you know, I'd forgotten about, but, you know, hit me again afresh watching it this week. It's just that just... bit from the, mo- the first moments on where she sat there and Dennis is boiling the egg. Oh, yes. And yes. then it does that clever camera thing where it flicks back to someone and flicks back and then no one's there and yeah. she's talking to herself and it's, it sets the tone yes. from that first that, few minutes. Up until that very last scene, 
where he leaves for the last time without his shoes, and yeah. she's saying, "No, you can't go yet. No, Dennis, come back. Come mm. again." It's a you know, well-deserved Oscar win for Streep, and a very well put together film, I think. But but obviously, before we go on too much about about the Iron Lady, mm. Streep now to sort of seamlessly segue it to this yeah. new film is playing another historical British figure and champion immense, of women's and rights, champion yeah. of women's rights of immense importance, Emmeline Pankhurst in in Suffragette. Not not the uh, not the focus of the film, certainly by, not by any means. Suffragette is very cleverly titled. You know, it's, it's not it's, the focus is on the movement yeah. and and the ordinary women that that put it together. Yeah. What, we, what did you think? The Meryl Streep thing is clever publicity. Maybe minor spoiler. She's in the film for all of about three minutes, something like if that. that yes. Yeah, if that. Um, in in what is an hour and forty minute film, this, the, as uh, as Dan said there, um, she's absolutely not the focus point of it. So I think that might be clever publicity by putting her first and forefront. The film Suffragette, I think, is an interesting film, but I think it, it suffers from what I think something like King's Speech suffers from. Whereas this, there's this kind of corblimey Britishness about it. <laughs> it. You could tell that it was a BBC film, a BBC produced film. In the, it, for me, it was less cinematic and felt more like something that you could watch over maybe two or three Sundays. Mm. And in the same way that Downton Abbey isn't something that is going to strike at the core of cinema or maybe stay with you long after you've watched it. Sorry yes. to any Downton fans, we might have a amongst us but <laughs> suffragettes suffered in the same way for for such an important time in our history and one that is so relevant at the moment yeah i know the poster of the tagline is the time is now mm. and like to coincide with its release we still have now even fresh the discussion of women's pay in, in hollywood right the way down jennifer lawrence for example has just published an essay on why why should she yeah, um, yeah absolutely you know earn less than than a co-star sienna miller has recently come out and said that she's recently um turned down the role of being in the west end because she was going to be paid less than half or something so the time is now suffragette perhaps doesn't feel as shocking or as explosive as it could have been to be seared into the the zeitgeist it is a with a capital V, a capital I, and a capital F, a very important film. Yes, stamp. Uh, Let's yeah, rubber stamp that now. And but it is it, it is good, isn't it? It's also a very yeah. Good, I mean, I agree with you. Yes, it does feel it does have the uh, the essence of a of a sort of Sunday night drama. Mm. But I I liked spending time with those characters, mm. and I think it was a good decision to pick fictionalized. Kerry Mulligan's uh, Maud Watts, isn't it? Yes, yeah, these sort of ordinary women that got involved in it. And, I mean, it's just remarkable to watch something and, and hear those, the very opening lines of, of these you know, fusty old men, these MPs, talking about why women shouldn't have the vote. It's mm. just remarkable to hear that. In and such that was, a flippant you know, way as yes, well. Yes, just completely, you know, of course they shouldn't have the vote. That's ridiculous. So, you know, they, they can't handle it. Mm. It's crazy to think that that was a, a, was a popular opinion. Yeah, and also, <laughs> within spitting distance from us in history, just before the credits, they actually rolled through yes, when women yes. got the right. Um, and we were, both of us were shocked that like Switzerland was in the mid-70s. Yes, yes. Uh, 70s for Switzerland. I mean, we uh, all women were given the right to vote over here in 1928, yeah. which is, you know, not really that long ago. No. And, and we still have as the film... My grandfather was born in 1925, for example. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like within his lifetime, yes. you know, it's crazy um, to think of that. So that's why, you know, I think it's worth watching, especially for its historical importance. The fictionalised element of it, where the, we're following this fictionalised laundry Worker, yes, isn't she? Worker, yeah. It's both its strength and its weakness. In that Maud is an every woman, isn't she? Yeah. She's just someone that we follow. We can kind of recognise her. She's a she's a very right. normal. She's girl. been created, I think, to sort of represent the the people who the women who were getting involved in stuff. Exactly, yeah. And she's just one of the Bethnal Green girls, and like, yeah. per, and is purposefully for that. But she becomes 
and I, I'm hesitant to use this word, but I still think it works in this context. She becomes radicalised by the suffragette movement very, very quickly in the film. Like, one moment yes. she's kind of reticent to get involved, and she's there like, what are you doing? You know, you're going to be the one who's going to get us all in trouble. The next minute she's throwing bricks, she's blowing things up. It seems to happen incredibly quickly. Yes, but I think, I mean, there is, that mo- there is a moment in the film which I think is supposed to illustrate the point where she suddenly realises... No, enough is enough. Mm. We, you know, the, life is horribly unfair for women. Yeah. We, we, we shouldn't have to put up with this. There's some, you know, <laughs> the scriptwriter, Abby Morgan, like, deals more to what's some horrifying blows. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, character. There, there was one part of it particularly, and I'm not going to spoil it for you now, but there is one moment in it where I did think, have they gone too far? It does feel entirely in keeping. Mm. And I will say for the director as well is that it was one of the most believable ye olde Londons that's <laughs> yes. ever been presented like it felt there real. was no fog no there goodness. was no fog <laughs> the core blimey accents are to a minimal degree I thought Ben Wishaw's one slightly kind of broke believability a little I, bit Ben Wishaw is a an odd casting maybe the one the weak link in the film Ben Wishaw is so sort of I don't know. Paddington Bear. So Paddington Bear. It's very hard to imagine playing this sort of uh, yeah, rather the stern Cockney, husband, yeah, uh, stern, you know, mustachio from Bethnal Green, you know. laundry d- delivery driver. Yeah, there are some parts of it where it does feel like body blows for the sake of it. But yeah, as I said, it is entirely in keeping. From the first moment we see Oxford Street, it it looks instantly recognisable and it looks believable. It looks like uh, you know early twentieth century well Oxford Street. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that, for me, was a noticeable element. Sometimes, far too often, particularly when you watch these Sunday night dramas, they look, they just look... I think you can see the shard in, <laughs> poking out of some of them. Or they seem so over-stylized, like maybe, for example, something like Sweeney Todd's Fleet uh, yes. Street, yeah, which yeah. I suppose is done for the aesthetics. But something like this did feel like a, a breathable, real, museum-y London. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, the production di- design was was very good. Top marks, top marks for that. There's some great monologues in this film, aren't there? Some wonderful speeches from the characters, sort mm. you know, vocalizing their struggles and their pain and and why it's so important. And and again, as you say, it helps that it, it's come at a very relevant time. And you know, you get you got I, I for one got you know a little bit emotional, not teary, but you know there was something there was something quite you know something stirred inside me when you had uh, Emmeline Pankhurst re- delivering her speech, you know, saying you know I'm not I'd rather be a rebel than a slave. We mm. don't want to be lawbreakers we want to be lawmakers and it's just incredible that you know this happened this really happened and these people fought for for to get what we see we take for granted now we take for granted every day and i think you're absolutely right in both these films when you see i know it's glossed over much more in the iron lady you just get those kind of almost uh, my fair lady elocution lessons and things, yes, aren't they? Yes. where they're like oh they'll never accept a woman then the next minute she's kind of prime minister yes. it's a shame that with, with the iron lady one thing i will say about that is that it falls into that trap of a lot of biopics where well they don't always have the choice but it, it's very episodic and you've got to pick out the highlights of, mm. of you know she spent 10 years in downing street and you've got to kind of pick out cherry pick, that. cherry pick and 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 do it in a in, a, in an economical way when you've yeah. only got an hour and forty five minutes. But I suppose the the point um, I was going to say uh, I say about both of them in thinking about what you said about these this fight for equality is that even now if we remove it from just the the plight of women around the world, if you look at for example like the Syrian refugee crisis that's going on like reverberating through the media mm-hmm. at the moment, these people they just want to be treated like human beings, and that particular part where the ladies are protesting outside. Uh, the Houses of Parliament, and and they begin to be clubbed by the policemen. Yes, it's very that's brutal. unflinching as well, mm. and, and and certainly something that I thought will detonate in in modern day viewers that kind of level of violence, that kind of level of police brutality or or state brutality. So I thought that that's where perhaps the suffragette did um, start earning some points back. Yes, and 
one thing I found very well handled by by the director was the climax of the film. Which it, it, this isn't really a spoiler, I suppose, but it, it all sort of builds up to the famous uh, Derby Day, mm. where where Emily Davison, um, you know, spoiler if you haven't caught up on your history from hundred yeah. years ago, threw herself in front of the king's horse uh, for the sake of the movement, and, mm. and 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 you know, essentially became a martyr for the cause. The martyr for the martyr for the suffrage movement. For the movement. And I don't know about you, but I was sat in the cinema and despite knowing exactly what was going to happen, felt this impending sense of dread and, mm. and worry that, you know, that she was about to, you know, was about to be, was about to kill herself. Well, the composer captured that beautifully yes, by music all, taking well. it almost yeah. down to just a single heartbeat. B-dum, yes, b-dum, and, and, and the way it's cut, that bit, the editing of that scene is, 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 is remarkably good. To be able to make the viewer worry about something that we know is going is inevitable and going to happen i think is very because you could watch that and think well this is just going to be mm. it's, it's not a difficult it's not an easy job to to invoke those sorts of feelings no. it's something that everyone is is so it's so ingrained in, well, in, in society's reason, conscience possibly the reason that half our population now has the reason has the right to vote in the mm. in the way we do you know it it it, it all tra- is traced back to this movement i actually thought that was a, a probably the best sequence of the entire film how it was done but it did leave a bit of an aftertaste again that where do you go um after that ending it does begin to almost fizzle out like that's the point of it and i didn't think like with Maud's character she's kind of almost forgotten in the debris <laughs> of that uh, brendan gleeson's character who almost a uh, wart in this film he just pops up everywhere doesn't he and yet it feels very much like uh Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive yeah it's, exactly <laughs> doggedly he's, he's following everyone yeah, yeah but yeah. Uh, apparently was, the only policeman in London but he's like Agent Smith wasn't he it was almost like <laughs> every every suffragette had a Brendan Gleeson to go after them in this <laughs> yes. film but yet he's left hanging Ben Whishaw's character completely forgotten and yes. I understand that yes. the, the, the uh, point of the film not sound exactly you know things aren't tied up yeah quite so neatly at the end and fair enough and nor should they be but but cinematically, I still felt that there was that there was things left hanging that I don't think I think it was clumsy rather than left on purpose. Mm. Of course, this film should have been left open ended because there is still not equality in the world, and, and no, films like this need point. to draw attention yeah. to that. But this felt clumsy yeah. and sausage fingered rather <laughs> than deft. Do you know what I, I did think about when watching this film was, mm. and watching this film in comparison to the Iron Lady was that some women got the vote. In 1918, yeah, only some certain certain women mm. of a certain class, and I think the first woman to take her seat in Parliament was in 1919. So then, and then you think, oh, okay, that happened in 1919, but our first woman Prime Minister wasn't until 1979, yeah, which you know is, is, it makes you really put some remarkable things into perspective for you. Mm. And I know I've said remarkable a lot in this review, and no, I, I completely understand what you're saying, and I suppose because of that, it would have been more interesting for us to have actually been delivered a perhaps colder, more calculated biopic of Margaret Thatcher, rather than use the Margaret Thatcher story as a vessel in which to explore the punishing nature of dementia mm. or, or, or losing one's faculties. I think she's an interesting character because of the sheer strength. She was the Iron Lady. Yeah, yeah. The, the lady's not for turning. And to see someone like that kind of crumble through their own mind, through losing their own yes. mind, it, it was harrowing to watch. But again, I still feel that they're, they're, as well as that, there would have been an interesting biopic that, that maybe we still will see that should perhaps focus yeah. on the struggles of being a woman in politics more. And I yes. remember the initial teaser trailer kind of did tease that. I don't think I realised until I went into the film that it was a film almost entirely solely concentrated on the dementia. Yeah, although that, that was a pleasant surprise. With the idea of the, the pearls. Remember yes, when yes. she was there, like the hat can be is negotiable. Go, but the, the, but the, the pearls, pearls are absolutely, absolutely not negotiable. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I also, now now seeing that, I struggle to think who else who else could play no one. Margaret Thatcher. No one. 
I don't not think after that. No, there's no. I don't think anyone like Meryl Streep and Jorah Mormont is. as her father as well. I've forgotten about that. Oh, of that. course, Ian Glenn. Yes, yeah. yes, as the wonderful uh, Alfred. Napoleon can do it, and <laughs> yeah. now Hitler can't do it. Oh, thanks, Ian, for dropping by. That's the Marys. Sorry about that. <laughs> Should we yeah. move on to Bob's? Perhaps do you think? Yes. Shall we segue on to Bob's? What What are you giving them? I'm going to give them both exactly the same. Okay. And I'm going to give them both three Bob. And the reason for that is that, as you know, I am a champion of the three Bob film because I feel like <laughs> if you give something three, people are like, well, what's wrong with it? Yeah. It's just that these films aren't, they, they, for me, they don't go down into the entirely amazing mind-searing films. There are There is enough for me to say, mm, I didn't like that, I didn't like that. So, for example, if I start with The Iron Lady, this film rests entirely on that casting of Meryl Streep and yes. Jim Broadbent. And I remember I, I had the pleasure once of, of meeting the producer of The Iron Lady and he said like his pitch was essentially just Meryl Streep is Margaret Thatcher and yeah. of course that immediately sold, got the film made. Yeah, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing and as I said I do think that Jim Broadbent's Dennis Thatcher is undervalued. I think it's such a great turn like a really, really I, lovely well, Jim impression. Broadbent is one of our best character yeah. actors and he gives it his full in he, this film. I did and I do enjoy the film and I think it really is an interesting look into dementia. I, I think that in focusing so much on that aspect some parts are underserved perhaps. Um, so three Bob, good film, yes. doesn't go into great. Same for Suffragette, is that there are some wonderful moments in it and some really brutal kind of fireworks in this film mm. where we see, as you said, like the killing uh, towards the end, uh, the the beat, the savage beatings, yes. some of the prison scenes. All but, handled very well. I yeah, and, and not overly manipulative. But there, there was enough fluff in there, maybe kind of sympathy fluff in there for me to think that actually I felt more like I was in the company of a Sunday night drama rather than an, a very important film. You know? mm, capital V, capital. Yeah. It does feel, in some ways it does feel a little bit like Oscar fodder to me. You know, this is an important movement. Women are still undervalued. Let's make a film of it. Fair enough. I will give them both three bob as well. I think when we first did The Iron Lady, I gave it four bob, but mm. I, I'm a little harsher now in my old age, mm. and it certainly is a three bob, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very, both of them are very good films, both worth seeing, but as you say, I agree with the, many of the points you made, you know, Meryl Streep does make The Iron Lady, uh, she elevates it above from, from an average film to, to a very good film, and I think the cast in, in, in Suffragette does the same thing. But as I said, for, for, the, for the various flaws that we've discussed, it can't be more than a three. But, the, you know, I enjoyed watching it. A very, as I say, very important film. Watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits for they become your character. And watch your character for it becomes your destiny. What we think we become. So what's gone on while we've been gone? September obviously is always a big month in the in the film calendar. Everyone, you know, all the all the sort of Oscar Beatty films start coming out. Suffragette. <laughs> that was October. Yeah, so. yeah, sorry, I've stitched myself right <laughs> yeah. up there. Like, I'm the like the right bunker. You, you idiot. <laughs> oh, you bloke. To, to channel uh, <laughs> to Ben Whishaw. <laughs> to, to channel Bethnal Green's Ben Whishaw, yeah. Um, For those of you who don't realise, we've been doing this, this is our third season of this, we used to do the radio show. Yeah. Uh, but we've taken a month off, didn't we? So yes. our second season finished in August with the Mission Impossible special. Yes. So we're, we're going to spend this segment just looking at some of the really, actually, good films yeah. and maybe uh, not so good films that have come yeah, out some of, some of the highlights for, for whatever reason of, of September as we, as we go into the awards uh, season so the big one of september was was ridley scott's the martian okay let's do the math i gotta figure out how to grow four years worth of food here 
on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, none of this matters anyway. People are hailing it as one of his best films in a long time. Definitely. Certainly better than Prometheus. Well, it's, it's a real return to form. I think Scott's had somewhat of a lugubrious run in <laughs> recent times with things like Prometheus. Was it of Gods and Men or something like that? The Christian Bale Moses uh, story. Oh, yes. Yes. So there have been a couple of dodgy and The Counselor, of course, uh, that came out that everyone was expecting to be film of the year and was just... Dross, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> sorry, Mar- sorry, Sir Ridley. <laughs> yeah, but whereas The Martian is just pure science fiction fun. Um, that, yeah, I mean, yes, I would certainly say it, it is It is so entertaining. I mean, a lot of people are making comparisons with Interstellar mm. and looking at this one more favourably because both are, you know, both are space films, both, are, you know, there's a lot of comparisons there. Yeah. But <laughs> you've got Matt Damon involved sort of being lost in both and... and uh, Jessica Chastain appears in both. I suppose it kind of um, it owes more. Well, it doesn't owe more. It, it's more like Interstellar. But I, I did see this as like the third in a, in the triplets that are Gravity, Interstellar, mm. and now The Martian. But certainly, because I think you know we've discussed this before. Nolan takes everything so deadly seriously. This was, it was there was fun in this movie. I think this was the out of those three films I've just mentioned. I think this is easily the best. Like Head and Shoulders, the best. Yeah, we I mean, we spoke about. In, you need to inject that sort of in. There needs to be some sort of. There needs to be a bit of fun in your film. There needs to be a bit of electricity in there. And it doesn't have to be a physics lesson. And ironically, apparently, I'm told by a physicist that this is actually far more scientifically accurate than Interstellar, which is remarkable, to use our word of the day. (laughs) Uh, It is remarkable to think that that, because Interstellar plays out like a... Like a, a physics lecture is very, very serious. Yes. It's very portentous because of how serious it is. There is no arrogance in The Martian. It's it's just fun. Yeah. Like, I enjoyed myself so much. But then it does ramp it up enough for there to be re- a real seriousness about it towards the end. Yeah, You're literally again, on the edge of your seat. I was on the edge of my seat. Your knuckles again. are bleached white by what's going on. <laughs> yes, you desperately want him to be okay, to be okay, and to and to get back to to Earth. Yeah, and you know. I just, I really love this film. Probably one of my favourites of September. Looking back at the list that I compiled before we recorded, you know, the ones I have seen. This is my favourite yeah, film of above, September. You know, September. above and beyond the rest of them. You know. mm, this so, is easily my favourite film of September because it had that, I don't know, there was a Guardians of the Galaxy kind of in, yeah. in its soundtrack. We're going to see more of this from filmmakers, the soundtrack juxtaposing the sort of what's going on on screen. Yeah. And, and, and really did it, Ridley does it very well. I mean, it feels a little bit like a, a cheap imitation of what was achieved with Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. But, you know, I, what, I think what's not to like about 70s disco? Yeah, and I, th- I think that perhaps it was more contrapuntal in its way than, than Guardians of the Galaxy, and that Guardians of the Galaxy used it to to support and to flavour the ideas, whereas Matt Damon hates the music that he's <laughs> yeah. being left with. I quite like that as a, as a device. And he's perfect casting. He's you know, brilliant. I, you know, there is uh, very few actors, I think, who could pull off this role. Him and Tom Hanks. <laughs> yes, him and Tom Hanks. It's probably. him and Tom Hanks. Um, I mean, this is Castaway in Space, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's a Robinson Crusoe story <laughs> with disco music and Mars. <laughs> yeah. Sold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's your elevator pitch, but th- there is something very infectious about it, and it goes down the kind of that Breaking Bad, uh, MacGyver style of watching clever people unpick difficult problems. Yes, and there is something. Yes, he's going. He says, doesn't he? I'm spot squintingly enjoyable. I'm going to science it. the shit out of this. Yeah, <laughs> which is just wonderful. A really, a really great film. London in the 1960s. Everyone had a story about the craze. You could walk into any pub to hear a lie or two about them. But I was there, and I'm not careless with the truth. Legend. 
Legend, the craze. The craze. Biopic. Know, biopic, yes. Uh, with with Tom Hardy playing everyone, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom Hardy goes Eddie it's, Murphy. It's a one-man on show. Doesn't he, yeah. Plays the Tom craze, Hardy the play, craze mom. playing the entire East End of London. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're not my mother. <laughs> Actually, I am. <laughs> Legend, I've always thought from the very off, terrible title. Hated it. Um, hated the title. Mostly loathed the film. Mm. It seems like one of those, again, core-blimey biopics, but it... I was worried, was it going to glamorise the craze? And I work with someone actually now, one of the one of my colleagues, their grandfather used to sing for the craze in the club. And so knows the kind of devastation that... I'd just like to say, that, actually, I really love the craze. <laughs> I really love Legends. Um, yeah. and, but, but so was kind of involved, not in, in well, at least she says, in their criminal activities, <laughs> but at least in seeing the, de- the devastation and that, that cataclysmic effect that they had on the East End. And so I was kind of worried that, was it going to be just another one of these glamorous... Portrayals, and, and I must admit, it doesn't quite fall into the trap of that. I didn't like the fact that they did it as a biopic from the point of view who someone who has been dead for years and years. Yes, very strange creative decision there. It's, you know, having it narrated by by Francis, the wife of Reggie Cray, who took her own life, took her own life not years, sure, and years and years and years, 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 years ago. At the time, in the actual context of the film, and she's narrating events that she couldn't possibly have any knowledge. Yeah, of. Yeah, and it's clumsy. It isn't in your kind of American Beauty no. style of. If you're going to pick narration as a plot device as a way of carrying on your story it has to be done very well you've got to have Morgan Freeman and... <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to give Freeman a role somewhere but also imagine that role Morgan Freeman as Francis Cray <laughs> legend uh, Tom Hardy as everyone else <laughs> No, I'd it's, watch that. It's clumsy, and and the thing is, as I said, is you, as you said, sorry, you've got to play it so well. And if you're going to do it from the point of view of a dead person, as as American Beauty does so mm. well, and Kickass kind of teases that, doesn't he? Do you remember? There's that part where you think Kickass might die, and he says, oh, yes. "Just because I'm narrating the film," and that's very yeah. knowing and meta. This film is so clumsy, and it basically offers its own excuse, doesn't it? So he's <laughs> there like, "Oh, if you thought I got out alive, well, yeah. actually, look, there's me dead." Yeah, there and I, like, Bloody I actually hell. topped myself. Yeah. Apparently, the family has since come out very, very negative about mm. how he's being portrayed. It's Tom not, Hardy is the only thing worth watching in this Tom film. Hardy is very good and, and well done to him for playing both roles and differentiating between the two roles very well. You actually forget about within about 30 seconds to a minute yeah. that he is the same um, person. Some wonderful cameos from actors well known for playing, playing gangsters and appearing in these sorts of films. Paul Bettany turns up as um, Charlie Richardson, which is great, and uh, you've got Kevin McNally turns up as the Prime Minister, yeah. <laughs> and and of course the wonderful, delightful uh, John Sessions as as the Lord that kind of gets things a little bit, uh, causes a bit of trouble for them all. Um, the real slim shady, I think, <laughs> is the role yes, he plays. Of course, uh, but it doesn't offer. I didn't find. I didn't think anyway, and and I have certain interest in the history of the craze. It didn't offer anything new. No. It just feels like an echo, doesn't it? And again, it feels... you mentioned you mentioned there how you mentioned earlier how Suffragette felt like a, a Sunday night drama. This felt like something that could very easily I could have watched over three nights on ITV. Mm. The lighting, the everything about it seemed like it like like a television version of the East End of London in the sixties. Yeah, and yeah, the only thing you know, Tom Hardy always very engrossing on camera. There's something that kind of niggles me about Tom Hardy though is that he does seemingly play vicious maniacs all the time, and there are some parts that. My friend actually pointed out some of the quirks he brings to them. Mm. And as different as the characters are that he plays, you know, like both the craze, he, he completely differentiates, as you say. You know, if you compare that to something like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises or how he plays his character in Inception or Mad Max. Yeah. But there are these kind of little animalistic quirks that he brings to all of them. And I would love to see him do something completely different now. But top, top marks him in Legend, yeah. I, I will concede that. It yeah. just feels but, but very otherwise perfunctory. A, a, but otherwise a disappointing film, yeah. What else have you seen? 
I saw Macbeth. Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Clowns. Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. All hail Macbeth, that shall be king hereafter. Fassbender, new version, which isn't so much like reimagining, but it just... It feels fresh, right. and there's lots of new kind of little cinematic tricks that they bring to it. It's good. It's really good. I hugely enjoyed it. There were some people in there, I think, that because Fassbender was going to be in it, because it was supposed to be this brand new kind of imagining of it, thought that they would drop the Shakespearean dialogue, and they don't. It's, it's completely original. It's not so much faithful to the play, it's an adaptation. Yes. Some of the more noticeable points in Macbeth, particularly the toil and trouble witch's speech, mm. has been completely dropped. Now, someone else I, uh, I know who's seen it thinks that that was to its detriment. For me, I thought that it was quite nice. It, it, it felt new and, and fresh. And uh, when you're adapting a 400-year-old play yeah. that has been done to death, I recently saw Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet and felt that it was kind of a bit stuffy and boring because I've just seen Hamlet so many times and this didn't feel like it was bringing anything new. Fassbender's Macbeth does feel... 2015 and the fight at the end is just amazing like absolutely amazing one of the best sequences of 2015 the way that they bring lighting the way they use the props the way that they use sound is is well worth watching it does feel a little bit shakespearean in places and rightly so that. <laughs> being a william shakespeare play but there there are some parts where you think that the adaptation may be is a little bit stifling. Yeah. And I do think that Lady Macbeth's character, as much as Coltyard is amazing in it, she does feel a bit forgotten about in places. And in the same way that Suffragette, I think, suffered with pace and how quickly they get through things, it did feel a little bit the same. Like, Lady Macbeth goes insane awfully quickly. And that right. the soliloquy that she comes out with towards the end of the play is shoulder-barged in. But worth a watch. If you can grab mm. it before the end of the year, I do think it will probably feature in many people's top tens. Most people have seen, seemingly given it five bob. Yeah, it's been very well received, and it's really nice to see a, a, a film from a Shakespeare play mm. so so warmly received by, by critics and, and audiences, helped, I'm sure, no doubt, by Fassbender's involvement. But but to see people you know, going out... It does out, bring something you know, to it, though. You know, it's sold out in a lot of cinemas around here, I think. You know, people... It's going wider and wider, and as I said, it's well worth watching. I do think it's going to appear in a lot of top tens. I'm not entirely sure if it's going to quite reach mine, but it, as I said, it, it feels like, it feels like uh, Shakespeare is very nouveau riche again at the moment. Yeah, He's yeah. The, the play, playwright du jour again, Dan, <laughs> 400 years on. Who would have thought it? And I know that they're two different mediums and it's difficult difficult to compare, but I did enjoy this far more than the, than the Hamlet um, adaptation, yeah. Cumberbatch's Hamlet. You know, if you ever want to impress someone, you're going to see Hamlet. Mm. Just whisper, knock, knock, just before lights go up. Okay. It's the first line is, who's there? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, you saw... <laughs> Moving swiftly <laughs> Sorry, on. Sorry, no, yeah. <laughs> I saw Woody Allen's latest offering. Okay. A Rational Man starring uh, Joaquin Phoenix and, and his new muse, Emma Stone. I can't write because I, I can't breathe. I'll get you breathing again. I, you know, I'm, I'm the, the will to breathe, mm. inspiration. You, know? you need a muse. I've never needed a muse before. Not great. 
No, no, not really at all. Uh, Phoenix is very good, and it's very refreshing to see one of Woody Allen's male lead characters not sort of just channeling Woody Allen. I'd love to see that though, back in <laughs> Phoenix as Woody Allen. Bloody hell! That should be. You know, you know in the way that you know we we, we saw yeah. Man in Paris. And Owen Wilson, Wilson is, is just you know just a conduit for, for Woody Allen. Uh, Whacking Phoenix's uh, Professor Lucas isn't like that at all. You know. But again, similar, I think, to Legend, there's nothing particularly new here from Alan. It's just the same. It's one of his very bog-standard films that's going to come and go. There are flashes of brilliance. The climax is very good. Emma Stone is nice. But you've got the normal sort of young woman, attractive young woman, is completely besotted by troubled older man. Yeah. And... How many times have we seen that from Woody Allen? Yeah. And he doesn't ever... Both in film and <laughs> elsewhere. Well, uh, careful, lawyers will be honest. He, does, he doesn't do anything else with it, does he? It's the same old stuff over and over again. I do and... feel the more he produces, the less relevant he is. The more kind of mud he's throwing at his own mm. iconography, I suppose. But like I said, some, some moments of this film are great. The, the, the concept of it is that you've got... The, Joaquin Phoenix plays this troubled philosophy professor who finds new meaning in life when he realises that he, he's going to kill... He overhears a conversation in diner from a woman who's about to lose custody of her children to her, her inept husband, and slightly, I think, uh, implied abusive husband. It's implied that the judge is on the father's side. He's like a friend of the father in some way. Sure. So, Joaquin Phoenix's character decides to kill the judge. Okay. And he's going to plan the perfect murder. And, and there's lots of wonderful moments there where he, you know, he's sort of planning it, how he's going to do it, and, and we go from there. So worth watching? Uh, if you see it on DVD, if it comes off on TV, maybe we'll give it a go. But I wouldn't spend too much money on seeing it. Wait, you know, go back and watch Midnight in Paris or, or Blue Jasmine. And now it's time for which Chris said this. Brilliant. So yeah, we're gonna light, lighten the tone somewhat. Yeah. It's two one. You've got you know everything to lose. <laughs> sure. I feel like Gareth Southgate at the moment. Okay. So for 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 listeners unfamiliar with this game. I am going to give Christopher the names of three famous Christophers and one quote. Sure. And your simple task is to correctly identify which Christopher said it. It's, it's good fun. Fun for all the family. Yeah, it's fun for me and you. <laughs> ages, ages eight plus. Eight to eighty, you can join in. Um, I'm eighty-one. <laughs> you're looking good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay, so your your three Christophers. Okay. This this month are Christopher Guest. Right. Christopher Reeve. Brilliant. And Christopher Mince Plassey. So that's Spinal Tap, yeah. Superman, and McLovin. Yes. And me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a Channel Vice programme. Obvious bedfellows, I thought. Yes, yes. And your quote this, this time round is, How can the human race be the only living form in the universe? There has to be other life forms out there. I believe it. Oh, bloody hell. I don't think McLovin would have said that. <laughs> because... As much as I like him, he does seem a little one-note, doesn't he? Like, I, I don't know all, but when I've seen him interviewed, I'm kind of like, yeah, you are Mohammed McLovin. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see him really as much further than that. And I know he's been in different bits, but it, even his appearance in films distracts me in that, in that film because I just think <laughs> McLovin, McLovin, McLovin. Let's take him out of the running straight away. Okay. I tell you, what, if it is going to be him, I'm going to have such egg on my face. But that seems like quite a philosophical comment to make, so let's take him out. Okay. Right, Christopher Guest or Christopher Reeve? Do you want the quote again? Yeah, go on, say it again. Okay, so, how can the human race be the only living form in the universe? Mm. There, have to, there has to be other life forms out there. I believe it. Right. Christopher Guest is quite an intellectual man, and he's produced some pretty intellectually stimulating comedies. He's, you know, he's, he's not one of your Adam Sandler-type comedians. <laughs> but Christopher Reeve was Superman, and he there was. is something quite ethereal about that. Mm. So I'm going to say, I'm going to back my instincts, I'm going to go with Christopher Reeve. 
Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve. The answer is Christopher Mince Plassey. <laughs> you having a laugh? No, no, no. Christopher Mince Plassey said, said that. Said that, yes. So the person that I instantly knocked out. Said it, yeah. You'd like me to get you an egg. Yeah, and spray it on my face. I can't believe it. That's I know. Joke. I thought that one would catch you out. That did. Well Good. done. So to all. To all. I'm back in the game. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so... There it goes, up on the shelf. <laughs> Sorry, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that, that gem. That yeah. gem of a jingle. We've we've brought it back. Anyone who doesn't know, essentially, we 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 we've robbed the grave of Roger Ebert, who uh, produced his greatest movies. Uh, essentially, what we've done is bastardised that. So uh, what we have is it, it's the it's a metaphorical shelf, Dan, isn't it? That we put our yes. perceived greatest oh no, we can't say greatest films for legal reasons <laughs> the, the best films in our opinion yes yeah? Yeah. can you say that legally yeah yeah, I think yeah so. good okay i don't think anyone's got copyright on the best films in our opinion i think the ebert statement might beg to differ so we've put up there american beauty jurassic park yeah the godfather part two yep. and the long good friday long good friday yeah. so i'm gonna now beg to put on raiders of the lost ark okay go ahead hello marion Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. It's, it's one of those films. I don't even need to hear the reasoning. I, I I am playing it really safe. Of course I am, because this film is one of the greatest films of all time, basically across the spectrum. Yeah. And, and people who hate cinema, I still think, kind of have a soft spot for this film. Uh, I watched it the other day with my fiance, who'd never watched this film before. I can't believe she got to twenty five years old. She'd never seen Raiders before. Good lord. So we put it on, and it just evoked that immense magical feeling that is nostalgia. And I do think that. Raiders of the Lost Ark whips onto this shelf in the same way that Jurassic Park does. Yes. Because this is a cornerstone of childhood. But the thing that really pushed me over the edge and thought, I have to talk about this on the next podcast, is there is something so transcendent about Indiana Jones in cinema. And I know that's because it's been built with these blocks of B-film and, you know, 1940s adventure films that Lucas and Spielberg loved so much. I would love to have seen it back in its heyday because there are so many things that are just monumental about this film. The the casting of Harrison Ford, the the props of the fedora and the whip, yeah. the opening sequence, the music, everything about it is so iconic. You struggle to believe that it was made by humans. Like in the same way that you look at something like the pyramids and just think, how did that happen? And they've become so iconic because of it. Like I look at Indiana Jones and I, I would love to know more about the creative process because so much now belongs to Indiana Jones and so much of it is, is paying homage to that kind of thing. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or whatever it was called was loathed so much because it kind of dented that nostalgia. Yes. But do you know what I'm saying? No, it's no, the same absolutely. Like Star Wars, they managed, to, they managed to bottle a lightning bolt. Yeah. And, and everything about it is genius and works because was, of it. Was there some reason, I mean, I know you've been listing some wonderful uh, reasons to put that one on the shelf. Was it was there something that, you re- the reason you chose that one rather than the other two from the original trilogy? I think because it's the first one. Yeah. And uh, I don't think Temple of Doom 
gets back to the heady yes. heights of Raiders. But I mean, like, I think uh, Last Crusade like, does. Yes, like I really love Last Crusade. That's a very interesting. Uh, and if I could put like twin films on there, and I don't know, maybe we'll maybe we'll, in weeks we'll, to come. We'll, 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 yeah, well, maybe maybe that will end up being on there as well. But uh, yeah, both of them are kind of neck and neck. Raiders, Raiders just pips it because it was the first one. You know, I think was it Isaac Newton that said that he's only great because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Maybe I think that we enjoy. Crusade. And he never saw Raiders of the Lost. And he, and he never did. Uh, I think he was involved in the initial pre-production. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, like Last Crusade, for example, maybe we enjoy it so much because Raiders gets everything right. Mm. And for me, this is just a really a few minutes just for adulation and applause. Uh, like a kind of machine gun fire of applause for this film that just does work so well. Like, it's such a yes. it's such a five bob film. Oh, and it's, it's an odd thing to say, but it is such a five bob film. This, <laughs> the, the most five bobbest. But it of is all five there, there, there is just so many moments that take your breath away in it. The uh, the, the the fight in the des- uh, in in the marketplace. Sorry, where the guys with his sword yes, and yes. just get shots, which I've subsequently found out is because Harrison Ford was suffering from dysentery <laughs> and yeah was just so knackered on that day they were like just do something like that and that. <laughs> <laughs> that folds in on itself to become a great moment. Yes. You've got the moment where he goes to the the bar in what looks like the third ice age to go and see his, <laughs> a, an old bow, and you've just got the shadow silhouette. That strikes me as such a perfect moment because they didn't know that Indiana Jones was going to become this giant in cinema, but to be, have that perfect silhouette mm. of the fedora and the, the muscular physique of mm. Harrison Ford. Yeah, recently, of course, forward. voted by Empire Magazine readers as the most iconic film character of all time. Of all time. Mm. And I think Raiders is the perfect argument for that Yeah, because it gets so much right. There's not much more else I want to say about this film, to be perfectly honest, because I think that most people will have seen it, so I don't want to patronise people with this is the plot of the film that you probably spent your entire childhood with. Yes. I was asked recently, um, I teach film studies to, to uh, A-level students, and I was asked recently by one of them, that, who is my favourite director? And I found it very, very difficult to pinpoint, but the one that I keep coming back to is Steven Spielberg. And well, that's yes. because he seemingly has a kaleidoscope of childhood and dreams that he manages to kind of, I don't know... And now has two films on our shelf. Yeah, and um, but he manages in true hypodermic fashion to kind of just push it into your brain. And when you think about things like back in your childhood, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe The Last Crusade. Uh, these films are the ones that reverberate so much. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you can if you can capture nostalgia and you can capture cinematic iconography in the way he well, does... He's got it bottled somewhere, hasn't you're he? You're laughing all the way to the <laughs> bank, yeah. There must be some kind of picture in his attic of something. I don't know, Tom Cruise or someone. <laughs> Purely coincidentally, David Brake, our editor and champion, has recently retweeted a list of the worst-to-best films of Spielberg. Mm. So uh, just maybe this discussion here would inflame you to take that out. I think it's a hipstery list. I don't agree with it. I haven't yet had a chance to look at take, it. If you would take a look and take listeners. But yeah... Raiders of the Lost Ark, please join the alumni of the shelf. It's up there, with honours. Here's Netpicks. Yep, I, I love really, that. I really hate that jingle. I love it, and this has been quite a show for your jingle album. I hope you don't mind. I don't mind at all. So yes, we're, we're rounding things off, we're rounding our main features off this, this month with, with Netpicks. Mm. Uh, so I've been trawling Netflix re- uh, recently. <laughs> what is Netpicks? Like, like we need to actually say, <laughs> but you might oh, as yeah, well. Sorry, yes, for anyone not familiar with with the show, Netflix is essentially uh, we pick a film or a TV show that is is currently on Netflix. <laughs> Genius <laughs> that we think is 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 particularly worth watching, um, and you know maybe one of us hasn't seen it yet, or if it's a particularly iconic 
show or film that we reckon people should, should certainly, you know, net, Netflix has managed to provide it there available. Gratis. Uh, you know, on demand. Uh, obviously, other streaming services are available. Mm. This time around, it's Network. Okay. The 1970s film. First posthumous Oscar of all time, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, to, to Peter Finch, who, who plays, sort of put upon Howard Beale, yeah. an ageing news anchor who, who essentially loses his mind, mm. uh, starts, going, starts going mad on air, and is quickly and rapidly exploited by the network that he works for, for the, for the sake of uh, larger profit margins. It's a wonderfully cynical film about television and, and journalism and the, and the chase for audience ratings and watching it now uh, in 2015 it feels as relevant as it probably was in the 1970s when it when it was first released yeah and it's one of the it's it's part of i think a great mini golden age of american cinema american cinema in the 70s was firing was, on all cylinders was firing on all cylinders not particularly actiony or Gung ho! It was they were intelligent films. I was going to say it was smart su- such a such a uh, kind of boom of the intellectual film. Yeah, like if you think about what we we consider to be so important to us, things like The Godfather and you know Taxi Driver. These all films were born out of the seventies. Yeah, no, so it comes from as one of that wonderful wonderful period of, of American cinema, and I think it, it really does define that period of American cinema. Forgive me for getting a bit too academic there. The performances, obviously, it was, as you said already, Peter Finch was, was nominated and won posthumously. He sadly passed away a few, uh, a few months after, after the film was released. Um, he won for, for, for the role of Howard Bill. He's famous, of course, for the, the monologue, you know, I'm, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, mm. which has sort of gone down as you know, one of the, surely one of the best quotes from any film. Uh, Faye Dunaway playing the uh, sort of ambitious but ruthless producer of the network who, you know, who sees him going mad, realises everyone loves it, and I think people always forget it. that she's in that film. I think maybe because of Chinatown, you know, just being so yes. kind of known for that, you forget <laughs> yeah. that she's actually in Network. Yes, and she uh, she won again mm. Best Actress. Beatrice Strait, who was in the film for all of about five minutes, yeah. won for Best Support, won the Best Supporting Actress. It was uh, a bit non- of a sweep, yeah. And you know, famous that that was so. Not only did it get the first posthumous. Uh, Oscar, it, it holds the reckon the distinction of being having. I think she has the shortest performance of any best yeah, supporting it, actress. Yeah, it's always winner. her, Dench, and Hannibal Lecter, isn't it? Yes, uh, Anthony Hopkins yeah. and Hannibal Lecter. And I think both Ned Beatty and William Holden were nominated in the best supporting actor category, but uh, we didn't win. Sadly, but also both good. Uh, William Holden plays Howard Beale's friend and producer uh, Max Schumacher mm. um, uh, as another sort of stalwart of the of the network and Ned Beatty plays the the owner of the network who again has that sort of has his own mad monologue towards the end yeah and um, just I mean a brilliant script smart witty terrifying and as I said full of you know things that you probably would you know is very relevant today tv networks do you know are, will chase um, they wade through the debris you know, of, of human, of, yeah, human suffering and, yeah. and uh, anger and and hate I think there were some I don't I'm not going to name them but I know there were, were some news networks, especially in America, that chose to sort of run with the ISIS beheading videos. And, you know, it's stuff and the, like that. And, 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 you know, we live in an age where... The journalist that was killed live on air as well. I know yes. that, that was kind of dominating... And, yes, of course. Newspapers, you know, and, and we ju- used the footage from the government. Yeah, we live now... It's, it, it has, in many ways, got even worse. We live in a 24-hour news cycle. So mm. it's, it's even more intense and, and mental. Anyone who watches network, you get a fair... You, you would watch network and think, you know what, nothing has changed. Surely it should be better. Which has got it, worse. But it doesn't. And the film sort of just ramps up the insanity of the media world. 
and up to a, you know an incredibly shocking but quite brilliant finale. It's a five bob film. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! So, housekeeping, we don't have a jingle for that, Dan. No, never have and never will. This is the first clear-up of the third season. Yeah. I really enjoyed today. I'm glad that we're back. I think it's gone well. A couple yeah. of bumps, but I think we've, of bumps, we've got but... back into our, our groove. <laughs> Are we in the car bumping into things, like, <laughs> yes. more, yeah, rather than we're being this, bumped? Yes, in this dodgem ride of a podcast. <laughs> in this dodgem ride of the last three years. So, yeah, any new listeners, uh, and bizarrely, Dan, our listenership is increasing with every episode. Against is, the odds. Yeah, against the odds which is such a joy so thank you thank you if, if you've been with us since the beginning thanks for coming back if you're new then we hope you enjoyed your first flavor uh, we are a monthly podcast we will be back next month yes. probably sooner than you actually think uh, we will be back in just a matter of weeks actually you'll know his name the person we're bringing along um, yes. for some film world some film new you'll know his name <laughs> is there anything else that we need to say i mean i think I, i'm really excited for this this third season as we're calling we've got a couple you know, of changes I, haven't there's, we? A, there's a few changes afoot we've got some i think some exciting new developments definitely and, and some new features for you if you enjoyed netflix and which chris said this then my golly have we got some you know some stuff some crap you. that you might enjoy <laughs> some other crap you might like <laughs> I always think of us as, uh, as an audio jumble sale, Dan. You know, there's a lot of rubbish, but once you might just find a little gleam of something yeah. that's worthy. Every, every now and then. Time. Yeah. Every now and then. Yeah, so, ch- do, so tune do tune in next time. Tune in for that. You know, obviously, have a look at the um, One Room of a View blog, which we are attached to. OneRoomWithAView.com. Lots of stuff coming out. We're, we're covering extensively the London Film Festival at the moment, Yes, Dan. right up until the end of October. That's going really well. There's some real gems at the moment. Tori, Tom... I think Tori and Tom are taking the lion's share. We've got other people yes, writing for the blog at the same time. reviews coming out almost daily. Literally, on almost an hourly basis. <laughs> yes, Not working. the monthly stuff that we do. No, no, we just crop up here every month and, and do this and go away again. If you want to contact us, though, we're podcast at oneroomwithaview.com. Yes. Yeah, we do you... do a feature, uh, Challenge Chris, Challenge Dan. We need to finish that next episode because yes. I've got a challenge yes, to come about, in my I way. I was about to say, next next episode, I'll be finally completing my sort of odyssey <laughs> of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> which I've so far successfully put off, but I have to watch the final original Pokemon, Pokemon film. Yeah, and Pokemon the, 3, I think Pokemon 3, the imaginative the, title. Know, the legend of something or other, <laughs> Pikachu. <laughs> uh, <laughs> legend of Dan Altman. Or is that Pokemon 4? Now I have a new challenge for Chris. I'm looking forward to it. If you do want to contact us, though, bung us an email. We're also on Twitter, at One Room With A View, numerical one. Yeah. I'm at the Preston Knight. You're at Mr. Alton, M-I-S-T-E-R. Like us on Facebook, we're simply one room with a view. There's lots and lots of stuff going on, competitions, reviews, articles coming out, as I said, on an almost hourly basis. David Brake, as I don't know, I think he's created several Horcruxes just to be able to, li- to deliver this content <laughs> yeah, to you. Yeah, there is something, that, I mean, there's something for everyone. Mm. Um, and as Chris said, you know, do let us know what you think of the podcast. We hope that you'll be uh, tuning, tuning, yeah, tuning in, uh, in November. Yeah, so we'll see you in November then. Cheerio. Cheerio.